Our scripture today is going to be in Acts 12, starting in, chap starting in verse 1 and continuing throughout the rest of the chapter. If you don't have a Bible, there are black Bibles in under the seats in front of you, and it's going to be on page 920 in our black Bibles. Again, Acts chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod, and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, You are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, It's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain. They asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put, down, put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man! Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the, but the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. The word of the Lord. All right, good morning, guys. My name is Steve. I am the lead pastor here, and obviously we are continuing our series in the book of Acts. Before we get in... Um, Let's ask you a question. You ever been stuck in the mud? Yes. Am I the only one? Um, we lived down in South County, St. Louis, South County. Um, we had 
uh, well, still have dogs, and uh, the dogs would escape on a fairly regular basis. And uh, I remember getting home one day, and the dogs had escaped. Lauren was at work, and and uh, and they had a way of always going kind of to the same place. They loved to go down to Gravelly Creek, which was a place they could just find many stinky things in which to roll and to delight in. And um, it was about a I don't know half mile walk down to the down to the creek, and um, so I decided that I was going to drive my truck through an empty field uh, to get down there instead of making the trek. Right? It seems logical. Um, and uh, and so I started driving, uh, and I got about a hundred yards into the field when when I kind of felt the ground getting a little soft. You know what I'm saying? So you're driving through grass, and 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 it's in that moment you you know you have a choice, right? In that moment, it's like, okay, do I do I stop and go back, um, or do you keep going and test it? And of course, there's only one right answer. You always keep going, and and you're like, it's you know, it's just solid right over there. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. And and so before long, I mean, really, um, I'm stuck, right? I'm stuck. You're, you're doing the forward thing, you know, the thing, and you reverse, turning the wheels. Um, so I decided to climb out and take a look, and that's when I realized I was in a bad spot. Um, it was about six inches deep of mud, and uh, it was just a, a mire. I mean, that truck was was stuck, and, and so, you know, you try everything, right? The smart stuff, like putting it in reverse and then getting around to the front and trying to push it and then trying to race back and jump in before it takes off. Um, some of you are laughing because you've done it. Um, I couldn't get it to move, right? I'm slipping. I'm sliding. I am, by the time I'm done, I'm just covered in mud. I'm getting frustrated. I'm trying to keep mud out of the cab because it's pretty easy to wash the mud off the outside of the truck, but it's really a pain to try to clean it off the interior. And so I'm in and out. And finally, I come back and I go to go back in and realize I had locked my door. The keys were still inside, of course. And so I'm standing in six inches of mud covered. My truck is running and my keys are locked inside um, tried everything, right? We tried the, the sticking the wood under the wheels. It just shoved it under the mud. Um, so what do I do? Well, what any normal, reasonable person would do. I throw a fit, right? I, right? That's what you do in that moment. You kick the mud, you throw things, you say words, many words. And, um, I mean, seriously, you ever have one of those days? One of those weeks? One of those years where you're just stuck. And no matter how, how hard you work, no matter what you try, you just seem to get more stuck. Maybe it's a problem that you want solved. And you don't seem to have the capacity, the wisdom, or the strength to solve it. Maybe it's a situation that you want out of. You're just sick of it but you don't have the ability to get yourself out of it. How many of you in those moments act like I did? Throwing little fits, right? Just getting angry, angsty. Um, Maybe you're an external processor like me, which means that fit is exposed for all to see. Um, Ending up with holes in the wall or dents in the side of your truck or things flying across and... Nobody wanting to be within earshot. Maybe you're an internal processor, 
right? Maybe you judge people like me, like, oh, you're so unself-controlled, but inside you are just boiling, right? You're just full of anger, anxiety, uh, unsettledness. Um, now, whether you express it internally or externally, isn't, isn't that just absolutely exhausting? You ever been there? Where you're just spinning your wheels and, and, and no matter what you try, you, you just can't seem to get any traction and, and, and it makes you angry and it's exhausting. And as you continue to fight and struggle, it only increases your anxiety. It only increases your fear. It only increases your exhaustion. All right, I want to leave that story for a minute. Leave me standing in the field covered with mud with a running truck. We'll come back to that story in a minute. Um, our passage today is a compelling look at two different ways of dealing with really the uncontrollable elements of life um, and the way of Jesus the way of being a Jesus follower is the, I'm going to tell you up front, it is the least intuitive way to deal with problems. But it is the most effective way. It's the least intuitive. Now, I didn't say it was the most efficient because the way of Jesus is never the most efficient, right? You want to go from point A to point B and you want the straightest, shortest line to get there. You want to know how to solve a problem. You want to know how to solve it now. That's not the way God works, right? The way of Jesus is always going to take you the scenic route. It is not the most efficient, but it is always the most effective. And I guarantee you it is the least intuitive. Because the way of Jesus doesn't move from success to success. The way of Jesus is not the way of the American dream, where you go from victory to victory, success to success, triumph to triumph. The way of Jesus is the path of the cross. The way of Jesus is the path of death and resurrection. All right, our passage is really uh, a comparison between two lead characters, Herod and Peter. One seems to have all the power, and one seems to have none. At the start of the story, um, if, if we're just honest about it, at the start of the story, most of us uh, would love to be Herod and not Peter, right? I mean, ignore the end of the story where he gets eaten by worms. I'm not talking about that part yet. I'm talking about the beginning of the story, right? Where Herod has all the power. Herod has all the glory. Herod has all of the influence. Whatever Herod says, Herod gets. Whatever he wants done, gets done, right? If he wants people to tell him that he looks good, people tell him he looks good. If he wants something done, he simply says it and it gets done, right? He has influence and power and control. That's what we want. In fact, that's what I think most of us spend most of our time trying to be, right? We want power and influence, fame or security, whatever it is. He seems to have it all. Now, here's the thing with Herod, and, and, and not just with Herod, but with, with anyone, he's not what he appears to be. There's actually um, something quite deceptive about that. Herod, historically, this is Herod Agrippa I. Um, and according to verse 1, he laid violent hands on some Christians. He even put James to death. The apostle James, this would have been James, the brother of John. When you read through the Gospels, James and John are like bookends. They're always together. Uh, they were called the sons of thunder. Um, they, were, they were passionate they were driven. They probably fought a lot. Um, James is put to death. 
Luke spends almost no time giving us any details on that because that's not what he wants us to focus on, but it does tell us how intense the persecution became, that Herod would even seize James and put him to death. So why did he do it? Well, according to verse 3, it was to make the Jews happy, right? He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when, he, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. So Herod is a, a Roman ruler, right? Herod is, is not Jewish. He is a Roman ruler. He is, in fact, the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the king over uh, Israel when Jesus was born, um, and he was a nut, uh, we'll talk more about him in a sec, but here's what I want you to realize. The Romans didn't really have any problems with the Christians. The Christians were really a sect of Judaism. They were part of the province they were ruling. The, Roman, the Romans weren't threatened by the Christians. Why would he all of a sudden decide to lay violent hands on the Christians? Most of the Romans couldn't care less about the Christians or what the Jews thought about the Christians. They were the uh, dominated power, right? Why did he care? Well, I think it's because um, for all of his perceived strength, he was actually quite weak. His image of strength was, I think, his way, honestly, of running from his weakness. Herod Herod's grandfather, Herod the Great, executed his father, Aristobulus, in 7 BC because he felt threatened that Aristobulus was going to take over his throne. So his grandfather killed his father because he saw his father as a threat to his power. Herod was then sent off and he was raised with um, the children of Roman aristocracy. And um, when he came of age... um, he apparently was able to very skillfully work his networks and his connections. He was very political um, and was able to basically, these sons of aristocracy entrusted different areas of rule to him. And his area expanded to the point where when we read this, the area he's ruling is is essentially the same kingdom that Herod the Great ruled. It was just as expansive and, and just as powerful, and he could legitimately be called the king of the Jews because he was a king over all of the areas in which um, the Jews lived. He had acted intelligently. He had lived politically. He had nurtured his network. He had milked his success, but it was fragile. His most powerful friend was a guy named Caligula, And Caligula was not a very popular guy. He had power, but it was always threatened by other Romans because he was not very secure, which meant Herod was far from secure. So he started working his internal connections to secure his position of power, right? If if the people he ruled loved him, if the people he ruled adored him, if the people he ruled were were, um, indebted to him, it would be much more difficult for him to be removed from power. See, he paid attention to what the Jews wanted because of his insecurity. He needed the Jews to love him. He needed the Jews to follow him so that he would be harder to remove. It would increase his security. So I don't think he had anything anything against the church. I don't think he had anything against James. It was that he could do what the Jewish leadership couldn't. The Jewish leadership resented the growing influence of the Christians. They resented the presence of James and John and and Peter, but they felt um, inhibited. They couldn't lay hands on them. Herod could. 
and Herod did. He did what they couldn't do because he could execute people for whatever reason he wanted. And he was acting in what looked like strength, but it was really motivated by weakness and fear. He desperately needed to feel secure. So he did whatever he needed to do. Now, we know that this didn't end well for Herod, right? We read the chapter. At the end of the chapter, he came to an area called Tyre and Sidon because they weren't playing nicely. Um, In other words, they weren't coming in line. It's like a teacher in a classroom. Uh, If you have a student who, who just isn't coming in line, you tend to just migrate over to where their desk is to do your teaching, right? And as you stand next to their desk, your presence has a way of influencing their behavior. So he comes down to Tyre and Sidon, and, and he's basically like, all right, you guys, here I am. Uh, let's see if we can work this out. And, uh, and so he has uh, a display of power. So he basically calls them all together, and, and according to Acts 12, he comes out in his royal robes, right? So he puts on his finery. Uh, Josephus was an ancient historian who also tells us about this account. And according to Josephus, his royal robes were, in fact, made of pure silver. So when he came out and stood in the sun, he would have been blinding, right? They were robes that were designed to, to be not only impressive, but daunting. Like it would almost be when he was standing in the, in the full sun, almost difficult to look at him. It was a powerful image. He needed people to admire him. He needed people to see him as powerful. And so he put on this cloak of silver uh, to, to do that, right? He wanted people impressed and, and they were. They were, they cried out. He, he speaks out. He speaks with a, the voice of a God, not with the voice of a mere mortal. And he ate it up. <laughs> he believed his own propaganda. Right? He, he so wanted to convince them that he was glorious and powerful and secure, and they believed it. And so they started singing it back to him. And he listened. And he believed it. He said quietly in his own soul, he said, I am like God. I am now finally secure. I am glorious. I am powerful. I have control. So God looked at him. A man made of mud, hiding behind a cloak of silver, that was reflecting light from the sun that God had made. And God said, all right, man, who would be God? Here's a gift to test your power. Here's a worm. And this man, who was so determined to be like God, was taken out by a humble worm. It was God's way of highlighting the foolishness, the irony of men trying to be gods. All that power, all that glory was an illusion. It was just an illusion. Smoke and mirrors. That security that he craved, that security that he thought he had finally attained, was obviously an illusion. He, he, he thought he could protect himself politically but he couldn't even protect himself from a worm. His greatest fear ended up proving to be true. He wasn't God. 
no matter how hard he tried, no matter how many people believed it, no matter how much he tried to believe in himself, he was not. Now, in contrast to that, we find the story of Peter, right? Peter is a guy who, uh, in this story, has no political power. In fact, he is powerless. He has a group of ragtag friends who love him and are praying for him, but, but, um, and we know at the end of the story, he walks away free. But in this story, he's a man of no power. In fact, what does Peter do all the way through this story to rescue himself? What does Peter do that demonstrates his greatness? Right here is this great father of the faith, this great apostle, this great man of strength. What does he do? (laughs) He does nothing. I don't know if you noticed that. Like Peter does nothing. Peter's story is a look at how true power, true security isn't the result of strength. It's the result of knowing you're weak. See, Peter was seized during the feast of unleavened bread, and Herod wanted the greatest impact from his um, uh, murder, from his execution. So he waited, right? He waited. Now, he had probably heard from the Jewish leadership, <laughs> if you get Peter, hold on to him tightly because he's slimy. Right? They had already tried to put him in prison once, and, and when they came to get him the next morning, they found him back at Solomon's porch preaching all over again. Right, This guy, he's sneaky, right? And, and so Herod actually, according to this, is, takes extreme measures. He puts four guards, four trained Roman guards on Peter. That's pretty extreme. Two of them were chained to his body. So he literally had two armed, trained guards chained to his body body, which would have been com- made him completely powerless and, and honestly completely degraded. He couldn't have done anything without them, right? He was completely dependent on them. There was a third guard placed at the inner gate and a fourth guard at the outer gate. So we were guessing he was probably in the Roman garrison that was connected to the temple on the outer wall. And there would have been an inner area, a prison in which he was held. And coming out of that prison, there would have been an inner gate that came to an outer courtyard and then an outer gate that would have led to the outer street. He had two, pres- two guards chained to him, one at the inner door and one at the outer. Talk about helpless. He was stripped. He was stripped of power and influence and dignity. And what was he doing when the angel came to find him? You notice that? What was he doing? He was sleeping. What was he not doing? He was not wringing his hands with anxiety. He was not trying to pick the locks, pretending he was Jason Bourne, somehow able to knock out the trained guards and escape through the door. He's sleeping. I mean, who could say? He's chained to two armed guards. He just saw James executed. He's sleeping. Then the angel shows up. Now, there's a lot of comedy in this story, and I think Luke actually pulls it out. Uh, pretty adeptly. Um, so the angel shows up, and it's funny because it says that the angel shows up with a bright light and a demonstration of glory. It's like, bum, ba, bum, and nobody sees it because Peter's asleep. So it says he nudges him, literally kicks him in the side, like, I'm here, Peter, Peter, right? Kicks him in the ribs sort of a deal. Like, dude, wake up. I'm glad you're sound asleep, but it's time. And then he's like, Peter, put on your shoes. 
Put on your clothes. Put on your cloak. Follow me, Peter. Like Peter is like out of it. And Peter's like, okay. He's walking through the gate. There's one guard. There's another. Right? It's not until he's out in the middle of the street that it says he comes to himself. That he wakes up in a sense and realizes that it wasn't a dream. That in fact God had delivered him from the hand of Herod. And he realizes, wow, I'm, I'm free. And so the first thing he does is he, he heads over to uh, Mary's house where the disciples are praying. Now, there's a lot of Marys in the Bible. Uh, it's easy to get them confused. This is Mary, the mother of John Mark. John Mark uh, is a nobody at this point, um, but he's going to become somebody fairly important in the biblical story. We'll see that in the coming chapters. Uh, John Mark eventually will write the Gospel of Mark and become Peter's most faithful um, disciple and, and, and companion. Um, but at this point in time, John Mark's a young man, and, uh, and Peter arrives at his mother's house, Mary's house, and all the disciples are inside praying. And again, there's a little bit of humor going on here because he comes and he knocks at the gate, right? And, and the servant girl comes to the gate. Her name is Rhoda. The Bible has, you know, the Holy Spirit has seen fit to make sure we know her name. Uh, Rhoda arrives and Rhoda looks outside and sees Peter and she is so overwhelmed with joy that she leaves him standing outside and runs back inside to tell everybody about it. I think about that for a minute. Peter's standing on the street. He just escaped from the Roman garrison. The Romans could be coming around the corner at any time looking for him. So he's like, knock, 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 knock. Rhoda comes. Hey, it's me, Peter. Oh, she runs away. He's like, knock, 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 knock. Right? She goes inside. It gets even better. They're inside praying for Peter's release. She tells them Peter's at the gate. They don't believe her. They're like, we're busy praying for Peter's release. Don't bother us telling us Peter's at the gate. Right? She's like, no, it's really Peter. They're like, oh, you're delusional. It's his angel. No, it's really Peter. They get into a theological debate about whether or not people have angels and if those angels actually look like the people, right? What does this mean? Meanwhile, Peter keeps knocking. Eventually, they hear Peter knocking. (laughs) And that's what leads them out. Eventually, like, what is that noise? So they all go out there. They find Peter. Then they're all excited. In fact, so excited that Peter's like, you guys, shut up, right? This isn't the time for noise. I'm just here to tell you I'm out. Go tell James and the brothers that I'm out. All right, the James here is James, the brother of Jesus, not James, the brother of John, right? This is the new James, James, the brother of Jesus, who will become one of the leaders, already is actually in the Jerusalem church. And, uh, and then he leaves, and um, he goes off to an unknown place. We don't know where he went. We know that he appears again in Acts chapter 15, where there's a council of the church, where they have some important things they have to decide on. Peter shows up there. But that's the last time we see Peter in the book of Acts. Everything else we know about Peter comes from tradition and outside sources. Um, so a critical transition point that we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. Um, but what does this all have to say about how we deal with the uncontrollable elements of our lives? What, what does this all this have to say about how we deal with anxiety? All right, so first is this. Um, let's just be honest. We really want to be Herod. Let's just admit it. Whatever your problem is right now, whatever your situation is, whatever it is that's challenging you right now, your first choice, if you're honest, is 
to be Herod. Um, and what I mean by that is, is you want to be able to solve your own problem. You want to be in control of the variables. You want to be able to write your own story. You want to be able to be like God and say, this is how it turns out, or this is who loves me, or this is who respects me, or, or these are the comforts that I get to enjoy in my life. These are the things that give my life meaning. You want to be able to dictate. So the first thing that we need to do is resist the temptation to be like Herod. We need to see that that is the default impulse of our hearts as sinners, but that it is in fact the wrong impulse. See, Herod represents all of us when we want to do life apart from God. When we want to, in fact, be God. We want to be in control, to create our own security, to claim our own glory. But here's the thing, you guys. We, we were never created to be God. We're craving something that is, in fact, uh, opposed to the very wiring of our human soul, wire, uh, opposed to the very wiring of the universe. We were, we were not created to be God. We were created to be dependent on God. The very thing that most of us are terrified of being is the very thing we were created to be, completely and totally dependent on God. In John chapter 15, Jesus was talking to his disciples, and he said to them, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you cut a branch off the vine, what does it do? It dies, right? The branch only has value insofar as it's connected to the vine. The vine is the source of life. The, the branch feeds off of that life. The, the branch feeds off of that energy. The branch is simply a conduit for the life that is residing in the vine, See, what happened when Adam and Eve sinned against God, when we were born in sin and continue to act in sin, is that we cut ourselves off from the source and the sustainer of life. And we try to do it on our own. In fact, we try to be a competing vine with God. I, I want to be my own source of life. I, I want to be my own source of glory. I want to be my own source of control and comfort. I don't want to be completely and utterly dependent. So we try to put on our, our royal robes, our silver cloaks, right? Herod's silver cloak was designed to impress people, to put fear into their hearts, to strike them so that they will look at you with respect and awe. And, and as they say those things to you, you desperately want to believe, you actually start to believe them. Don't we do the same thing? have this image of ourselves that we desperately cling to, and we want other people to see that image in us. Because we want to hear them sing the praise of it. If you're, especially if you're driven by respect, you want people to respect you. If you're driven by approval, you want people to like you. Now, if you're driven by control... It's not so much what people think of you as much as what you think of yourself, that you have the perfect checklist to keep all of the loose ends in order, and it drives you crazy when you don't have that sense of order and control in the midst of the chaos. Or if you're driven by comfort, which is not necessarily all about impressing others as much as, as comforting yourself, your, your perfect vision of what comfort is. 
of what is going to bring you joy, of what is going to lead you to this place of ease where, where you can finally relax and just te- take a deep breath, right? You, you desperately have this image and you put on the cloak that you ultimately try to wear to get there. It's your way of taking care of yourself. It's your way of, of trying to solve your own problems and fix your own broken situation. How do you know if you're wearing that cloak? I'll give you one simple, easy test. Measure your anxiety. How much anxiety do you have? How much worry are you experiencing? Because when you are trying to wear the cloak of your own glory, it will unleash anxiety in your life. Like me, when I was spinning my tires in the mud, when I was slipping and sliding around, when I was getting angry and saying words, when I was locked out and helpless. See, worry is the energy you expend trying to solve a problem you can't solve. Worry is the energy you expend trying to accomplish what you cannot accomplish. And you know it but you can't sit still. You cannot rest because it feels like death. So you have to do something. So you replay the situation over and over in your mind. You replay the scenario. You rethink all the variables. You, you go over and over and over and over and you are exhausted and covered in mud and spitting and throwing things and filled with fury at your own impotence to solve your own problem. Worry is the energy you expend solving a problem you can't solve and anxiety is the result of wanting to be like God but being confronted with the reality that you have limitations and you are not God. Here's the truth, you guys. It's a hard truth, but it's the truth. You are your strongest when you're your weakest. You are your strongest when you are most in touch with your weakest. And you, you hate that because we all do. <laughs> we all hate that, that feeling of being completely helpless, of not being in control, of being overlooked and ignored, of having our glory uh, not noticed or recognized, of missing the comfort that we crave. We hate it, but it's true. And here's the thing. We're at our weakest when we think we're strong. When things are going well in our lives, you know why? Because when things are going well in our lives, what do we think? We think, man, it's a good thing I'm here. Good thing I really am glorious. People like me. Good thing I'm around to keep things in control because all these slackers, man, they would be in chaos without me. See, when we think we're strong, we actually start thinking it's our glory. As if we weren't wearing something that simply reflected the glory of God. We, we like Herod, start thinking that this glow is ours and not simply the reflection of the beauty of the glory of God. We start claiming his glory. We start to believe our own propaganda. We start to believe our own lies. 
You guys, the invitation to follow Jesus is an invitation to weakness. You want to know what the heart of the Christian life is about? You want to know what the heart of Christian success is? There it is. It's the way of the cross. We are at our strongest when we discover just how weak we are. The path of Jesus doesn't go from strength to strength to strength to strength, from victory to victory. That's the American way. That's the American dream. It's all about me moving up on the boasting ladder of success where I can boast more and more and more about all of my successes. And it's death when we apply that to the Christian life. Well, I shouldn't be where I was last year. I should be breaking through to a new level. I hate that phrase. I should be breaking through to a new level. I should be getting more glory, having more success, experiencing more joy, as if somehow or this constant upward trend of success. That's the wrong model of the Christian life. It's not the model Jesus put out. You know what Jesus said? You want to be my follower? Take up your cross and die daily. The way of following Jesus is the way of death. The way of following Jesus is continually discovering just how weak and helpless you are. The way of following Jesus is continually coming to the end of yourself. Because when you find the end of yourself, you start finding the beauty of resurrection. It's in death that you actually start experiencing resurrection. God raising you from the dead. God filling your life with glory, God giving your life meaning, God pouring approval into your heart because you're no longer competing with God. You're now dependent on God. You are, in fact, what you were created to be, a branch connected to the vine, feeding on the source of life. When you feel helpless, the temptation is to take up the garment of Herod to fight, to find your own solution, your own glory, your own comfort, your own control. But that is, in fact, the wrong response. We need to resist the urge to be like Herod. We need to stop trying to clothe ourselves with our silver cloak. Instead, we need to push into our dependence like Peter did. And the first way to do that is by pushing into prayer. Prayer is absolutely essential to this process. One of the first things the disciples did when Peter was arrested was they got together and they prayed. Right? In verse 5, it says that, they, that earnest prayer was lifted up for him. So their first response when Peter was arrested was not, man, how do we, how do we solve this problem? It was, how do we go to the God who can solve this problem? And, and they did that, right? And, and our first response should be in prayer, not just personal prayer, but corporate prayer, right? They didn't just each go off to their own private little prayer closet and pray. They got together and prayed. If you never invite people to pray for you, how arrogant is that? Well, I just have my private life with God. What are you afraid of? Why are you so afraid of letting people see your weakness? Of letting people know that you need support, that you need prayer. Do you not see that that is part of your attempt to clothe yourself with this image of invincibility, this image of your own glory and your own strength? You need to invite people in. That's what they did. They prayed, not just independently, but together corporately. They reveled in their weakness. They were a community of broken, helpless people who rejoiced in the strength of God. They didn't stand around trying to impress each other with their glory. They were impressed with God's glory. They prayed. Now, I think it's safe to say that Peter prayed too. Now, we don't see it actually happen in the text. It doesn't say Peter prayed. But I think it's fairly, um, I think it's a pretty pretty easy assumption. Uh, When we see him, he's sleeping. I think that's probably the result of prayer, right? He's not filled with worry. He's not filled with anxiety. He's able to rest. 
He's in this situation in which he's completely helpless, in which he's getting ready to be executed, and he's sleeping. See, prayer is often what we do when we feel like we have nothing else to do. Kind of like a last-ditch effort. You ever hear the phrase, somebody will be like, well, let's pray, it's all we have left. As if when you pray, it's like shooting an arrow up into the sky, and hopefully it's going to hit some invisible target because nothing else worked. It's our last-ditch effort. Here's the thing, you guys. When we pray, it is an act of dependence on the God who created us. It is our coming to the source of all power, the one who's in control of all things. Prayer should be our first option, not our last. So why don't we pray more? Why don't you pray more? I know the answer for me a lot of times is, well, I just guess I'm not self-disciplined enough. You ever done that thing where you like set five minutes aside for prayer? You're like, I'm just going to pray for five minutes. Surely I can pray for five minutes, right? You get about 15 seconds in and you're thinking about the thing you're worried about. and You're having a conversation in your head that you thought you should have had last night and you're replaying the woundedness. You know what I'm saying? And you're like, no, 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 I'm here to pray, right? So you go back and you're trying to pray. Here's the thing. Paul Miller wrote a great book called A Praying Life. I highly recommend it if you haven't read it. Um, but in that, he made a point that really has stuck with me. He said, the, the issue with our prayer life isn't an issue of self-discipline. That's what we think it is. If I was just more disciplined, I would pray more. It's not an issue of discipline. It's an issue of desperation. When you are desperate, you pray. When you are most aware of your weakness, you pray. Not because it's your last ditch effort, but because you realize it is the only option you have when you are completely helpless that's when you do what you should have done to begin with, which is actually come to the God on whom you are dependent to solve the problem you can't solve. It's not an issue of discipline. It's an issue of desperation. See, when we're at our strongest, our perceived strongest, we have our least felt need for God. That's why we're so reluctant to pray, because we don't feel like we need Him. Let's just be honest. I've got this. Thanks, Lord. You gave me a great day. I've got it. Okay, this problem, I've got it. I've got the skill set. I've got the glory. I've got the power. I've got the influence. I've got it, right? When, when we don't pray, it is a declaration in our pride that we are the vine and not the branch. Now, ironically, what ends up happening is we flip-flop from not wanting or needing to pray to feeling like praying doesn't even matter. You ever been there? Like one day everything's great. I don't need to pray. I got today. And the next day everything's falling apart. And you're like, why would I pray? God doesn't even listen. What we're really angry about is that God didn't bless our self-salvation project. What we're really mad about is we had a plan. We had a story written for our lives and God didn't tell the story we wanted him to tell. So we think he betrayed us when it's really our betrayal of him. We blame him because we're trying to live a life of self-glory and he's not going to bless it. It is God, in fact, inviting us to repentance. When we pray, God listens, always. And there is never a thing as an unanswered prayer, never. You're like, no, Steve, I've prayed. I asked God for this and I didn't get it. He answered your prayer. He gave you exactly what he intended to give you according to his story, 
according to his plan, not yours. See, the problem is we come to God with an agenda and we say to God, bless my agenda, bless my story. And when he doesn't, we feel like, oh, he must not hear me. Instead of admitting, it's not my story to tell. It's his. And there are times God's going to say no, and it's going to hurt. Do you think they prayed for James to be delivered? I think they did. And he was still killed. Why? Because that was part of God's story. God was going to use the execution of James in the same way he was going to use the deliverance of Peter for his glory and our good. The way of death is a very scary and hard place to go because it means we're no longer in control. Prayer is the language of dependence and desperation where we simply admit, I'm not in control, but I trust you. Now, what I love about the end of this chapter is is the disciples were praying for the deliverance of Peter, (laughs) and then Peter gets delivered, and, and they're praying for his deliverance, and they don't even believe he's been delivered, right? These great giants of the faith, these great men of God, these, these people of the early church that we wish we were like, we are, right? There are times when you're going to pray and you're like, I don't think God's even listening. Pray anyway. There are going to be times you're like, God, I need you to intervene. I don't think you will, but will you do what you will do for your glory and my good? He will. And here's the thing, not only will he listen, he'll meet you in that prayer. So when we come in prayer to God, we're humbling ourselves and coming into the presence of God. And it's in that place of humility where once again, we're dependent on God that the branch receives life from the vine. It is in prayer that we often reconnect ourselves to the life-giving presence of God in the midst of our suffering. So not only does God hear us, God feeds us. God empowers us and strengthens us for the challenge that is in front of us. There may be times when you feel so powerless, so frustrated, so covered with the mire and the mud of what you're trapped in that you can't really pray much more than the simple prayer, Jesus, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus, be merciful to me, a sinner. I don't even know how to understand my life right now. I don't even know how to process all the sorrow, all the difficulty, all the pain. I I don't even know how to understand all the things that are going wrong. Jesus, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he will. When you feel powerless and frustrated, run to prayer. And run to others who will pray with you and for you rebuke the pride in your heart where you want to be like Herod and put up a front to pretend to be something you're not. In your desperation, run to God and run to others who will love you in that place and pray with you and for you. Prayer is the anti-pride because it forces you to admit your limitations and take off your cloak. So reject pride. Embrace prayer. And then just take the next step. What did Peter have to do in this whole story? He just had to take the next step. He was completely powerless, utterly dependent. All he had to do was take the next step. Be humble, be prayerful, be dependent, and then take the next step of patient obedience. But what do you do when 
when you don't see God doing anything? What do you do when he doesn't seem to be listening? Like when I'm standing in the mud with my, with my truck, right? I'm out there throwing a temper tantrum and saying many words, right? What, 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 what are you supposed to do in that moment? My truck is stuck. I need to get it out. It's running. <laughs> I'm covered in mud. What am I supposed to do? Well, when I finally calmed down, I was like, well, I guess I should call Lauren at work and tell her I'm stuck in the mud in this field. She probably told me never to drive out here to begin with. Part of the reason I didn't want to call her, right? Humble myself, right? Hey, will you maybe send somebody with your key so I can get into my own truck, right? And then I start praying, Lord, what am I going to do? How do I get this out of here? Do I need to call a tow truck? Do I need to, because I'll have to have like this 100-yard, you know, thing to pull me out. And I look over and there's a construction site next door. It's just up there and there's a guy working on a backhoe. I'm like, Lord, will you give me a favor? Backhoe drivers aren't always the most helpful guys in the world, but, you know, you never know. So I go wandering over there, covered in mud, looking pitiful. Hey, bro, you going to help me out? <laughs> it's my truck right over there. He's like, ah, yeah, whatever. Drives his backhoe over there, puts a chain on the back bumper, drags it out. So within 10 minutes, I've been out there for I don't even know how long. Within 10 minutes, I'm on the road. My father-in-law pulls up with the key. I'm out of there. So what does that mean? It, it, you might be surprised to learn this, but my kicking and yelling and throwing things didn't fix anything. Your anxiety, your worry, it doesn't accomplish anything. Do you understand that? It is wasted energy trying to solve a problem you can't solve. You need to come to a place of humility where you just take the next faithful step. All right, Lord, here I am. I'm stuck. I'm in this mud. What's the next faithful step? I guess I should call my wife in humility. What's the next faithful step? I don't know. I'll look around, see if God's going to provide something. What's the next faithful step? I'm going to ask God for favor in a situation in which I deserve nothing. And this guy probably is going to laugh at me and ignore me. And the Lord met me in that place, right? And if he didn't provide that, he would have provided something else. In the end, I would have allowed God to tell the story, not me. I would have rested and said, thank you, Father, for this opportunity to die. Thank you for allowing me to enter into this experience of death that I might taste the comfort of your resurrection. That I might come to the end of myself into a place of complete dependence, a place I don't like to be and I don't naturally gravitate. Thank you for giving me this gift so that I can experience once again the joy of your fellowship, your presence, your delivering power, the experience of your resurrection. When you're in the mud and you don't know how it all turns out, you have to trust that God knows and is in control and that you don't need to know the end of the story because he does. It's probably not going to turn out exactly as you would have wanted it. It's probably not going to run according to your script. But that also is part of entering into the death, isn't it? Of saying, I'm not in control. I don't get to write my story or the story of the world. My story has been written. I wrote it. It was a story of rebellion against God. It was a story of, of rejection of God's presence. It was a story of self-centered glory and sin. 
but God is rewriting my story as a story of redemption and restoration and resurrection. And I have the opportunity and humility to enter into the resurrection of Christ. This is going to be one of the hardest lessons of your Christian life, and it's one that you'll never continue fully learn. And there are going to be times when you're like, I don't know how to do any of this. And the question that's going to be in front of you is, will you at least take your next breath to the glory of God? Peter slept to the glory of God. When he was locked outside of the gate, he continued knocking to the glory of God. Will you just take your next breath to the glory of God? Will you just make your next decision to the glory of God? Will you just release your need to control and rest just for the next step to the glory of God? You're like, Steve, I don't know if I can trust like this, man. I don't know that I can trust God like this. When you're in that place, stop looking at your situation and start looking at your God. Because we have a God who took on flesh and walked among us who died the death we deserve to die, who actually became the embodiment of our rebellions. God sent his son to die for you so you could be forgiven, so that when he rose from the dead, you also might be delivered. If he gave you his best, will he not take care of the rest? If he gave you his son, can't you trust him with your finances or your children or your job or or your familial relationships? or your tension at work, or your grades, or whatever it is. When life seems overwhelming, you need to take your eyes off of your circumstances and look again to the God who loved you and rest. Just rest. Because it's not your problem to solve. It's not on you. It's on God, and he loves you, and he's for you, and he is rewriting your story as a story of glory and restoration, and he's going to take you there, sometimes kicking and screaming, but you will learn once again what it means to be a branch connected to the vine, follower of Christ. You will learn the joy of absolute, complete dependency. All right, I'm going to put some questions on the screen. Have you pray. Um, let God speak to your heart. Um, I do want to remind you we have worship response cards. If, um, if you have a prayer request, for real, write them down. Drop them in the, the box. We pray over those every week. We would love to pray with you and for you. Um, if you're a guest with us, please fill it out and let us know you were here. Let us know how you found us. Um, we'd love to hear it. You can drop them in the response boxes up front or, or by the door. For now, let me pray for us and we'll go into our time of response. Father, I thank you that even though you are the vine, the source of all life, of all glory, of all power, of all sovereignty, of all wisdom, you became a branch. The creator became one of his created. The source of life became a man made of mud that he might redeem us. 
from our failure, our rebellion, our sin. By living a life of perfect obedience and then dying the death of a traitor. And in our place is our substitute satisfying your justice so that when he rose again, it was not just for him, it was for us. Lord, let that story so fill our hearts. Let that love so disarm us that we no longer come to you demanding, but we come resting. We no longer come in the fits of our anxiety trying to manipulate you to be the God we want you to be. We come instead resting in the delight of your love. Now we thank you that you love us. Just free us to joyful dependency. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.